Well, thanks so much, uh, Carl. Uh, thank you, too, to Prabhu for your generosity in hosting us. Uh, thanks to Peter Siminski in absentia. Peter's uh, uh, a bit unwell today, so was uh, unable to make it, but was instrumental in putting on today's event. Uh, and I, too, acknowledge that we're meeting on traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to their elders, past and present. In 1956, a group of runners set off in Melbourne to see who would be deemed Australia's fastest miler. They'd covered two and a half laps of the four-lap race when someone clipped the heel of Ron Clark, who fell to the ground. John Landy, who was following close behind him, uh, put his foot on Clark and then, in an extraordinary moment, turned, stopped and asked Clark whether he was all right. By the time Ron Clark had said to him, yes, yes, go, go, run, Landy was a full 30 metres behind the rest of the pack. And in one of those extraordinary fairy tales, caught the rest of the pack and went ahead to win the race by 10 metres. Landy ran fast that day, but the reason that there is a statue outside Melbourne Olympic Park for the late John Landy is because of that moment of sportsmanship in which he stopped to check on a fellow fallen runner. A few years later, in 1962, a bloke called Keith Lee, a Methodist minister, turned 50 and decided that to celebrate, he would run 50 miles. He was the reverend at Rosanna Methodist and his mum was at a home in Mount Dandenong conveniently some 25 miles away. Uh, so Keith, on his 50th birthday, uh, ran to uh, see his mum, had lunch with her, and then ran back home again. The legend has uh, echoed around the Lee family for the uh, last couple of generations. Uh, so when I turned 50 in August, I uh, celebrated with the Canberra 100 trail race the next month. Uh, some craziness passes its way down the generations. But that notion of sport has always been important to me uh, in my own personal life. Uh, when I exercise, I'm a happier person and I think a nicer person to be around. Uh, watching great sporting achievements can be a moment that helps us transcend ourselves and brings groups together. Sport can so often help to drive the national conversation around inclusion. Think of that moment when footballer Nicky Vinamar decides he's not going to put up with the racist taunts any longer and goes out and plays one of the great games of his life and then at the end lifts up his jersey to show the opposing fans the colour of his skin, points to his chest and says, I'm black and I'm proud to be black. Sport's not perfect. There's moments in which sport makes us Hang our heads in shame. Think of the underarm bowling incident or some of the worst sledging of cricket in the 1980s. But it does provide a benchmark for what Australia might achieve. At the Tokyo Olympics, Australia came sixth in the medal tally, well above where our population or our GDP ranking would have had you expect. In the Commonwealth Games, Australia easily topped the medal tally. And Australians have set sporting records across a 
plethora of disciplines. Sport is fundamental to the Australian culture, and not just watching sport, but participating in it too. Part of that is that Australia is a pretty good place to play sport. Perth and Brisbane have, on average, twice as many daylight hours as Paris or Berlin. We don't have those sweltering days that equatorial countries get. We don't have the driving snows that countries close to the poles have to endure. Australia is a pretty good place to play sport. And when you compare our sporting achievements against how our economy and our society is travelling, you're led to wonder whether sport might teach the economy and society a thing or two. Over recent decades, we've seen a decline in the economic dynamism in Australia, a fall in the number of start-ups, a fall in the number of Australians starting a new business, an increase in market concentration, a decline in productivity. In the realm of community, we've seen a decline in the share of Australians who are giving to charity, who are volunteering for a local cause, who are joining local community organisations. And at the same time as you've seen this social disconnection, you've also seen a rise in economic inequality, an increasing gap between the battlers and the billionaires. Whether you look at inequality or at community, it's clear that Australia has become less of a nation of we and more of a country of me. Even Australia's test scores have slipped. And the OECD comes to Australia to test our 15-year-olds uh, every few years. And each time, successive cohorts of 15-year-olds do worse than the ones before them. And we're now to a stage where a 14-year-old in Australia two decades ago would have done almost as well as a 15-year-old in Australia today. I want to argue tonight that there's seven big lessons that sport can teach society and the economy. The first of those is about innovation. When high jumper Dick Fosbury decided that he would go over the bar, uh, not legs first, but head first, he completely transformed the sport. When Ned, Ned Trickett took to the Parramatta River at the end of the 1800s with a sliding seat in his skull, he showed that you could transform the way in which rowing was performed. When Australia too won the America's Cup after over a century of American dominance, it demonstrated what a wing keel could perform. And yet when we look at innovation in the broader Australian economy, we can see too much stagnation. Uh, this shows up most markedly in offices in which too many of us have become not knowledge workers but human, human network routers, constantly sending emails from one person to another, engaging in little packets of work rather than deep, enduring efforts. I'm a big fan of the American thinker Cal Newport, who argues that we have to fundamentally reimagine knowledge work and that it will take a transformation as big as 
what Fordist production did for factories in order to get productivity going again. And in that, we can learn from people like Ned Trickett and Dick Fosbury, who fundamentally transformed their sports. The second point is the importance of fair competition. Economists talk about competitive balance that characterises a good sporting code. That idea that in a good sporting match, you can't be too sure at the beginning of the game who's going to win. And at the end of a sporting year, there's still a chance for the team that ended up with a wooden spoon to make the grand final the next year. That's a trade that seems to be lacking if you look at the Australian stock market. Imagine that we had a stock trading Rip Van Winkle who went to sleep in 1985 and just woke up today. If they were trading American shares, they wouldn't recognise the American stock market. The top five firms in America, 1985, none of those are top five today. Large firms in America are firms like Tesla or Meta or Alphabet, which just didn't exist decades ago. But if the same stock trading Rip Van Winkle had gone to sleep in Australia in 1985, they would have gone to sleep with the big five firms being Westpac, the Commonwealth Bank, NAB, BHP and ANZ. And they would have woken up to find that Australia's top five firms were Westpac, CBA, NAB, BHP and now CSL, replacing ANZ. Nearly four decades on, and the top five companies in Australia are largely unchanged. We've had a lot of mergers over the last few decades, but the start-up rate has declined. And perhaps we can learn something from the way in which sport engages competition uh, for, that could teach us how to get a more dynamic economy. The third point is the importance of paying the players fairly. In 1907, uh, players of the then-dominant code of rugby union uh, got sick of the notion that rugby union was said by its organisers to be a game for gifted amateur gentlemen. Working-class blokes found it pretty frustrating that they were playing a game where they couldn't get any compensation for. And when they were injured, they had to lose wages the following week because they, the, the code wouldn't give them any share of gate-takings. So in 1907, a group of them got together in Victor Trumper's sports shop, not far from here, and set up a breakaway code, Rugby League. Over the ensuing decades, Rugby League quickly came to dominate Rugby Union uh, in New South Wales and then in Queensland, and remains today a more dominant code. That philosophy that workers should get their share of the gate-takings characterises a strong enterprise. Wise business leaders recognise that they can't have well-paid customers and badly paid workers, that their workers and their customers are ultimately the same people. It was said that Henry Ford argued for $5 a day minimum wage in his factories because he wanted to ensure that his workers could buy their cars. And yet too often today we have a debate over penalty rates, uh, which exists as, as though uh, those workers 
who earn penalty rates aren't also consumers. The fact is that people who earn penalty rates tend to spend their entire paycheck. And so putting, uh, putting money into penalty rates doesn't just reward workers for working the weekend, but also ensures the spending power uh, of the people who are going to spend their whole pay packet. Fourthly is the importance of coaching. I've been really lucky in my sporting career to have a series of extraordinary coaches. When I was a high school race walker, a woman called Yvonne Moline was our coach. And I knew that no matter how dark and dreary, rainy the night was, Yvonne would be out there uh, ready to run the race walking session. And so I was there, uh, rain or shine. Uh, and when I got into uh, running as a middle-aged adult, uh, I got advice from a succession of terrific coaches, including uh, Dick Telford and Rob DeCostello. And as I've gotten into triathlons, uh, Ben Gathercole has helped me uh, improve my freestyle from a, a clumsy crawl into something more resembling a smooth stroke. And when you look at the stories of extraordinary Australian athletes, very often, it's a great coach that's made a difference. Alyssa Camplin talked about her running coach, uh, who set her a task of doing 10 reps on a hot night. She got tired, and so as a 16-year-old, decided she'd just stop at eight. She came back, and the coach said, how were those last two reps? She said, oh, they were brutal. And he said, well, I was watching you and counting, and I know you only did eight. You're only cheating yourself. Alyssa said she learned a lesson from that about the importance of hard work, which saw her, within the next decade, go on to win Olympic gold as a skier. Extraordinary coaches have created extraordinary athletes, but we don't do quite so well in the realm of matching up school students to great teachers. Too often in Australian schools, teachers start their careers teaching disadvantaged students and finish their careers teaching the most advantaged students. We're not good enough in attracting and retaining great people into the teaching profession. We need to learn something more from sport in terms of how we uh, get great coaches into, the, into every classroom. The fifth lesson is that participation matters. Uh, whether you're into running or cycling, uh, or whether you're into squash, like Prabhu, uh, or some other favourite sport. Activity is regarded by just about every doctor as being important to a well-rounded life. It's good for your physical health, it's good for your mental health. The maxim of just move, or 10,000 steps, uh, underlies the notion that humans are made to move around. And yet there is too much of a notion uh, in the workplace that we should give up on work. Whether it's uh, those who are arguing from a hard left perspective or the Silicon Valley billionaires. An idea has emerged that we should uh, have a universal basic income in place and say goodbye to work for a portion of the population. I think that's a mistake because I think it misses the role that work plays in a fulfilling life. 
I represent a party that has work in its name. Uh, but it's not just because of my political side that I'm saying that. Researchers who've looked at the psychological impact of job loss say that it goes much beyond what you'd expect from the loss of income. And indeed, that in order to make somebody just as happy uh, after job loss as before, you'd have to give them not only their salary, plus sixty dollars to $80,000 a year additional to make up for the lost psychic income of working. Employment changes. Occupations cease to exist. But I think we make a mistake if we say that participation doesn't matter in the world of work. Just as exercise should be for everyone, we need good public policy which ensures that we have jobs available for everyone. That this magical time of an unemployment rate with a three in front of it doesn't just end up being a short transitory period. Sixth, I think sport can teach us a lot about the inclusion of women in the labour force. In 1972, when Billie Jean King won the US Open, she was paid a fraction of the prize that the male winner was paid. And so she told the organisers if they wanted her back the next year, then they'd have to equalise the payments. They did, and she continued to play. Not every tennis tournament was quite so responsive. In 2007, Wimbledon finally equalised male and female payments. In some sports today, there's a great deal of inequity between male and female squads. In others, equity is prized. Hockey, for example, makes no distinction in the payments or the status uh, for the men's and women's teams. And female pioneers, particularly in endurance sports, have shown us uh, what uh, women can achieve. And yet, if we look at the top of the Australian economy, uh, women are strikingly absent. Across the ASX 300, the 300 largest firms in Australia, just 6% have a female CEO. There are more big Australian companies run by men whose first name is John than there are run by women. Again, business could learn something from sport and the way in which uh, sporting pioneers have increasingly driven towards a more inclusive uh, code. When Australia sent our uh, squad across to Tokyo for the Olympic Games, uh, they were majority women. And that reflects the fact that at the elite levels of sport, uh, there is a much de higher degree of gender inclusion than in some elements of business and other aspects of society. And finally, racial equality. The 1968 Olympics, the gold and bronze medals, were won by John Carlos and Tommy Smith, two extraordinary US African-American runners. But sandwiched in between them was an Aussie bloke called Peter Norman. As they walked out to the medal ceremony, Smith and Carlos told Norman that they planned to hold their fists aloft uh, in a, the Black Power salute for racial justice. And Peter Norman said, I'll stand with you. I'll wear an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge and I'll bow my head while you raise your fists. Smith and Carlos had left one of their pairs of gloves behind and it was Peter Norman who came up with the idea that each of them should raise a different hand 
and that way the one pair of gloves they brought could serve them both. When he came back to Australia, Peter copped some criticism. Uh, but uh, even although he was a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, my grandfather, who I mentioned before, invited him to speak at Rosanna Methodist Church and to talk to the congregation not just about running, a shared passion with my grandfather, uh, but also about racial justice. A little, uh, under, or a little over four decades later, I moved a motion in Parliament that Australia apologised to Peter Norman for the way in which he was treated upon his return to Australia. Like Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, Peter Norman helped to advance the conversation around racial justice. Sport isn't perfect, but sometimes it can lead society. So, in the realms of innovation, competition, fair payments, education, participation, gender and racial equity, I think sport has a few lessons to teach the economy and the society. But the big lesson is that that equity efficiency trade-off you might have been taught at some point in economics doesn't always hold. And that life doesn't always have to be a choice between fairness and excellence. Sport shows us we can have both. Sport shows us uh, that we can often be better versions of ourselves. Uh, sport can uplift and inspire. Uh, and at its very best, it can show us how to build a fairer society and a stronger economy. Thanks very much. Look forward to your questions.